Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. How does the story of a 20-something woman toiling in the New York publishing world coexist with the story of an Iraqi-American economist detained at Heathrow? Lisa Holliday will join us to talk about her debut novel, Asymmetry. In what ways did the late Ursula Le Guin transform the literary landscape? Naomi Novik and Jerry Jonas join us to discuss her influence and legacy. Alexander Alter will give us an update from the publishing world. Plus, our critics Dwight Garner, Paul Sagel, and Jen Salai will join us to talk about the latest in literary criticism. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Lisa Halliday joins us now. Her debut novel is called Asymmetry, and it's reviewed this week on the cover of the book review. Lisa, thanks for being here. Thank you. So this is a kind of interesting situation because it is a debut novel, and yet you have had a profile in the New York Times. You got a terrific daily review in the Times from one of our critics, Pearl Sagel. You're on the cover of the book review. You've done NPR. You've had a reading at a major bookstore in New York. This is sort of not the normal just writing a debut novel and, and, and sort of having it out there. What does it feel like so far? Well, I feel very, very lucky. Of course, I've worked in publishing. I worked in publishing as an agent many years ago, and I've worked as a freelancer and a ghostwriter. My husband works at an Italian publishing house. I'm familiar with the mechanics of, of the industry, and I, I recognize that I'm extremely lucky, extremely lucky. Are you enjoying it, or is it nerve-wracking? I, I, I am enjoying it. I, I'm enjoying it. Uh, I'm trying to enjoy it to the fullest, along with taking care of a, a six-month-old baby. <laughs> and you're just in from Milan. Yes. So mm-hmm. how, do you, how is it that you live in Italy? That sounds like a, a very nice situation to be a novelist living in Italy. Yes, and in fact, it enabled me to write this book, I would say, because as much as I miss New York, it helps to be out of what in fact, a character in the book calls the fatal froth and frenzy of literary life in New York to have some distance put between you and where everything seems to be happening allows you to see things differently. It creates a kind of serenity that I found necessary to working. I live in Milan because my husband, who is British, is the rights director of Feltrinelli, which is an Italian publishing house. In terms of that distance, there is also the fact that some of this book, I'm not going to accuse it of being an autobiographical novel because I know that it's not, but there are some parallels between your own life and that one of the characters in sort of one of the thirds of this book is a young woman working in publishing in New York. Do you feel like you could have written it at that time when you were in your 20s? Did you start it at that time? No, no. I could not have as much because I had a very intense full-time job. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would get up early to write, but I was writing really short stories. I pay attention to life and I retain a lot. I think it's common for writers to have aggressive memories. And it really took a lot of looking back at that time in my life in order to write the first part of the book, which, as you've acknowledged, is not neatly autobiographical. There is much that is imagined and invented for the sake of 
a dramatic narrative. All right. Well, I'll let you tell listeners what the book is about because it is a little bit of a difficult book to summarize. What is it about? It has three sections. And in the first section, there is, as you say, a young woman who lives in New York during the early years of the Iraq War. She works as an editorial assistant, and she falls into a relationship with a very famous and much older novelist. And this provides her with a kind of literary and sentimental education. She is an aspiring writer herself. And my hope was that the reader would actually feel intimately part of this relationship as well. The second part of the book is very, very different. Some reviewers have called it disorientating, not in a negative sense, I don't think. Mm -hmm. Was that deliberate? (laughs) Oh, yes, absolutely. The second half is about an Iraqi-American man who was conceived in Baghdad, but in fact born on a plane high over the elbow of Cape Cod, and grows up in Bay Ridge. And um, his brother winds up moving back to Iraq. And Amar, the, the character in this part of the story, is detained at Heathrow Airport on his way to visit his brother in Kurdistan. And so the, the second half of the book is comprised of scenes in the airport and also flashbacks of Amar's life. And then the third section is a very brief kind of coda, and it is Ezra Blazer's turn on Desert Island Discs. Ezra Blazer is the famous older writer from the first half, and Desert Island Discs is a beloved British radio program that I learned about when I was living in London briefly with my husband. It's basically the transcript of Ezra Blazer's interview on the program, and he chooses the eight records he would take with him to a desert island, and he also reflects on his life. And that's how I would describe the book in literal terms, but I also would describe it on a thematic level. It's about asymmetries that abound in the world. It's about the dichotomous nature of the world and certainly my perception of the world. I wanted to create an impressionistic novel as much as one that has engaging plots within it. It's a book about empathy also. Yes, about to what extent we can be empathetic. I'm I'm very interested in the connection between empathy and imagination. And so it's to an extent about how someone like Alice can imagine and become empathetic with respect to someone seemingly very different from herself, mm-hmm. someone whom through the process of imagining, she might discover isn't actually all that different from herself. Well, for you as a writer, too, some of this story is obviously within your experience and the the young woman in New York and the affair with the older writer, which we can talk about momentarily. Mm -hmm. But the other parts obviously are not. You grew up in Massachusetts, right? Mm -hmm. In a working class family, the first person in your family to go to college, right? Mm -hmm. And then you went on to Harvard. And and now live in Italy. I'm curious, Is it, was it harder for you or was it more difficult to work on those imagined parts or on those sort of more familiar? I suppose they were difficult in different ways. They were also enjoyable in different ways. Mm-hmm. Writing the second half of the book, but also the first half and indeed the third <laughs> section, all of it required an enormous amount of research. I read books. I listened to music, I used the internet, I watched documentaries. 
something that I really enjoy in the process of writing is learning, learning what I don't know and what I would like to know. And yet, I don't like books that make too plain that learning process on the page. Mm -hmm. I think it, they really need to, what one has learned really needs to be incorporated organically and in an enjoyable way so that the reader is learning without realizing it. So your experience professionally in your 20s was working at the Wiley Agency, which mm -hmm. is a major literary agency in New York. How and why did you end up there? After I graduated from college, I didn't know what to do. I had majored in art history, and I considered briefly going to graduate school f for art history. And my thesis advisor, who was a very brilliant man named John Shearman, he was involved with re restoring the Sistine Chapel he was a very big figure in Renaissance art. He said to me, I think you should go out into the real world and work for a little bit, and then if you still want to do this, come back. And it was extremely good advice because how do you know that you want to remain in academia forever mm -hmm. if you don't try something else? So I took the Radcliffe Publishing Course, which is now the Columbia Publishing Course. At the time, it was still in Cambridge. And at the end of that six-week summer course, I met some people who work for the Wiley Agency, and they asked me to come in and interview. And I um, met with Andrew, and I liked him very much, and I wound up working there for almost eight years. All right, so now I get to the very obvious question, which I'm sure you're going to get asked and have been asked everywhere else. One of the writers that you met when you were working at Wiley was Philip Roth, and your character in that first half and in the coda, Ezra Blazer, to the reader, comes across as closely modeled on Philip Roth. I'm assuming that's meant that's intentional, that that come across. I certainly did have Philip Roth in mind when I was writing Ezra Blazer. Philip is a very dear family friend. I wanted Alice's relationship to be with someone of that stature because mm -hmm. that would maximize the drama and it would maximize the anxiety of influence, as Harold Bloom said. If she had had a relationship with someone who was only moderately successful, right. <laughs> the stakes would not be so high. And yet, Ezra Blazer really is a work of fiction. There's a lot of invention and imagination that has gone into him, a lot of research. It would be a mistake to assume that they are neatly correlated, as I think I put it to Alexander Alter. In fact, to me, Philip's greater influence on this book was in his own example as a hardworking novelist, seeing how, how rigorously he went back and back and back to his work, even when he felt it might not be working, the determination, sticking with it. You have to show up even if you don't feel well. Mm -hmm. Never giving up, even when it really seems that you are mired in something that may not be of value to anyone. That was a lesson that uh, I learned observing him. Was and this book hard work for you? Yes. It was difficult to arrive at the structure. And then once I realized, once I got the idea of the structure, it became much easier. And then the hard work is, is, is really, it's in the sentences. You want the sentences to be as clean, or at least that's the style I like, clean, streamlined writing, writing that almost reads itself. Mm -hmm. Calvino has a term he wrote about leggerezza, which is lightness, and as I understand it, it, it's that quality that certain writing has 
that makes it very easy to read. It seems light on the surface, but in fact, that that lightness enables a multiplicity underneath. And that's what I was trying to do. And that, for me anyway, it takes a lot of time, a lot of work. There would be days when I would spend five hours and the result would be one sentence that I was happy with. But I would prefer that to be the case than to write and write and write and not feel very, not feel that I had done the best I could. Did Philip Roth read it before it came out? Did he I asked my publisher to send a a proof to him and he he sent me a very kind email. And we would discuss it time and time and again. We would discuss the book. And that was a privilege to speak about it with someone like him, of course. Did you have trepidation about sort of knowing that people would know that you had had a romantic relationship with Philip Roth when you were in your 20s and that this character does and that they would sort of infer things or read things into it? Did that? Did you worry about what, what readers would think or what he might think? Well, to my mind, it really is fiction. So mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not the relationship that I had. As I've said it, I can understand why people will associate the two of them, Philip and the character, but um, it's really very, very different. And that's because in order to create a compelling narrative that drives you forward, you can't simply fall back on on what happened to you, Mm -hmm. or at least I couldn't. (laughs) And also, I think this comes from living abroad and feeling outside of the hotbed of New York. Mm -hmm. I wanted to privilege the writing. I wanted the book to be the best it could be. And if you really want to put the writing ahead of anything else, that's what you think about. You can't get caught up in self-consciousness. Something I've said before is that a writer gave me some very good advice. I say good advice, for better or for worse. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She said, write as though you're writing in secret, as though no one will ever read it. And That was Louise Erdrich who gave you that advice. Yes, and that's what I did. But not so much because I worried people would think about a personal affair that I had had. Frankly, the book is such a, a mix of experiences and details and things that different people have said to me, it really is not a neat telling of my own life. So I'm curious to know what people make of the book, what's between the two covers, not so much how the book intersects with my life or reflects my life. And in fact, this this very issue is anticipated by the book when Ezra Blazer says himself in his interview, yes, it's irresistible trying to parse what's fiction versus not fiction. Um, Everyone does it. But the best books, I think, are the ones that succeed in their own sealed universe, (laughs) not based on references to the exterior world. Well, now it's out in the exterior world. And I think that that Erdrich's advice is very wise. But I'm curious, now that it is out there, does the book itself feel different to you from what it was when you were working on it? And has anything maybe surprised you in what readers are saying and and critics and the way it's being read? I'm just delighted by the way it's being read. It's so gratifying to have people quote passages that you buried deep in part two (laughs) and that you knew were not the key to the book because there isn't one key to the book, but essential or 
evocative of the greater whole, it's thrilling to see that people have plucked those out and referred to them. And of course, it's also interesting when people see things in your book that you didn't intend. I've been thrilled by the conversation, that is, the reviews and what people have said to me about the book, because of course, for so long, one writes in solitude. And finally, to learn what people think of this project that you work on without knowing. One works on a novel like this for many years, in my case, five years, having no idea if anyone will pick it up, having no idea if anyone will get it, having no idea if your perception of the world, the impression you want to give to other people will resonate. And so it has been thrilling to feel that resonance, to feel the vibrations of people getting a lot of what I intended, but also getting a lot of things that I I'm learning myself. <laughs> That's right. You, you encounter your own book in a yes, different way. Yes. Well, the book is very much out there and resonating in a way that I think is a rarity. So congratulations. Thank you. I'm glad you're enjoying it. <laughs> Lisa Halliday's debut novel is Asymmetry, and it's reviewed this week on our cover by Alice Gregory. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. If you don't know our show... It's true stories that unfold like little movies for radio. Lots of them funny with surprising moments and plot twists. We've been on the radio for years. And we've teamed up with the New York Times to bring you new episodes of This American Life a full day and a half before you can find them anywhere else online. And the place you can do that is the New York Times audio app every Saturday morning. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories, when you're in the mood to hear something good, but you don't have time for a whole episode. And the New York Times audio app, can I say, is chock full of tons of other stories and podcasts curated every day for those moments that you want to listen to something and you don't know what you want to listen to. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. And if you're not already a New York Times subscriber, well, this is another reason to become one. Again, that's nytimes.com slash audio app. Joining us now to talk about Ursula K. Le Guin, the novelist Naomi Novik, who wrote an appreciation of Le Guin in the book review in verse, and Jerry Jonas, who is a longtime former book reviewer for The New York Times. He reviewed science fiction and fantasy for 30 years for us and wrote the very lovely obituary of Ursula Le Guin for us. So, Jerry, Naomi, thanks for being here. Thank you for having us. Nice to be here. So let's start with the life. And Jerry, you covered her fiction here. Tell us a little bit about Ursula K. Le Guin. She died last month. You wrote the obituary. Was this one of what we call an advance obituary? Had you been working on this for some time? It was. Uh, we updated it over the years a few times. I think the bulk of it about her childhood and her most famous books was written about 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And then it was updated a number of times since to include her later work and some of her interviews that she gave later in which she talked about her life. 
people always find this this side of obituary writing kind of morbidly fascinating. But we we write these advanced obits for a reason. And I'm assuming that you have done previous obituaries for... I have. I have. And uh, I, over the years, I've done a number. Most of the people are now gone. Uh, the one who isn't gone and uh, it's wonderful is Stephen Hawking, who they thought would be gone a long time ago, and uh, but he's still with us. Well, we, I guess we have his advance obituary waiting. <laughs> so Much updated. For people who aren't familiar with Ursula K. Le Guin, who was she? Well, she is the daughter, famously and importantly, significantly, of two anthropologists. I think it's Alfred Krober and his wife. And they are noted anthropologists, particularly of the Pacific Northwest cultures. And she lived in uh, Portland, Oregon. People asked her about her childhood and whether it was significant. She said, I had a happy childhood. I mean, she was encouraged to write. Mm-hmm. She, she started writing early. And, um, but clearly the anthropology seeped into her. That's how she describes it, almost by osmosis. You can find that in her fiction. Someone said her, her fiction is an anthropology of the future. At least that's her science fiction. And her fantasy is anthropology of, I guess, the imagination. So she's known primarily as an author of science fiction and fantasy, but she did a lot more than that, as you, your obituary made clear. Well, one of her things, I think she said, is the first thing she wrote was a series of stories set in a sort of a, a vaguely made-up, but based on a lot of uh, history, of uh, Middle Europe. And she called it the Orsinian Tales, set in a country called Orsinia. Later, after writing her major science fiction and fantasy, she went back, rewrote it, and a number of them appeared in The New Yorker, and then they came out as, I think, as eventually two books. She has also written essays on literature in general. So, Naomi, you, of course, write fantasy fiction yourself and won many awards. And um, how many novels have you written? I've just finished my 14th, I think. Wow. Okay. And you're part of this current generation of fantasy writers. How influential was Ursula K. Le Guin on sort of you personally and also the writers that sort of of your generation? I think she's a titanic influence. I've been trying to think about how to describe her influence on myself. And the closest thing that I can say is that I feel very strongly about her, that she was someone who was trying to tell the truth. And that in many ways, I feel like the reason that she worked in fantasy and science fiction quite a lot is that I think it's easier to tell the truth when it's more clear that you're lying. And so I think that fiction is more clearly a lie than nonfiction, and science fiction is more clearly a lie than fiction, and fantasy is, is really clearly, you know, y- you know that the reader doesn't expect you to be telling them the truth, and that allows you to tell them the truth. Did you grow up reading her novels? I did. I was given or possibly stole my first copy of The Wizard of Earthsea when I was 10 years old. My fifth grade teacher had it, and I still have that copy, which I— Someone wants it back, maybe, Naomi. (laughs) I know. So I met her through Earthsea, as so many people did. But after that, you know, I read so much more of her work, and a lot of her work on writing, a lot of her speeches, I feel like really kind of shaped not just my— approach to fiction, but my approach to just the world. Do you remember, what was your reaction to reading that first novel? I can't say that I remember it other than just loving it. 
I do remember feeling that it was it was true in the way that fairy tales are true. The idea of of Ged, the archmage, who defeats the enemy not through violence, not through a climactic battle, but by embracing almost his own darkness, his own failure, is something that I thought was really true and more true than many heroic narratives. What did she do? I'm going to ask this of both of you, but Naomi, why don't you start? What did she do that was really different in the genre? People talk about her as, you know, breaking rules and as being a groundbreaking author in in many ways as a woman writing about race also. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about that. Again, I think it comes back to me that she was always chasing truth and she didn't care what the rules were. She has this wonderful line i think it's it's from the introduction to the left hand of darkness or to the dispossessed i don't i don't remember where she says something like i am an artist i am a liar believe everything i say mm-hmm. and i think that she herself didn't particularly care about the box of genre she didn't care particularly about making something commercial in fact i think she was suspicious of sort of the pressure to be commercial mm-hmm. And so I think that led her very often to just focus really closely on her own creative choices and on trying to tell you stories that were true about the characters and the worlds that she was in. Well, as far as genre, I think it's interesting, though, that she started her first books that sold were in science fiction, mm-hmm. not fantasy. And uh, they were sort of a harder science fiction, a little more sciency and male. I mean, they're, they're almost all the original char- the characters in her earlier books, which were just sold as science fiction mm-hmm. books, paperbacks, uh, fairly early in the science fiction uh, uh, universe. She said once later in her later books that she was able to stop writing as an imitation man, and jo- this was in her later Earthsea books, and write as a mature woman. And so early on, she did have to face the fact that the genre which allowed her to become a writer was very male-dominated and, in fact, somewhat unwelcoming to women. Mm -hmm. She wasn't the only person who faced that, and she had some friends who used pseudonyms so that they would be seen as as men, essentially. She, interestingly, never did that, although her writing seemed to have a kind of strength that a lot of people... They forgave her for being a woman. You brought up that she wasn't interested in commercial success, but were her books commercially successful? Oh, yeah. I think she was eventually, I think 20 languages translated mm-hmm. into, and uh, she won every award in science fiction and fantasy, right, a M- number of times. So when she was accepted, she was totally accepted. Both and, critically and commercially. Exactly. And then eventually out of the genre, as Naomi just said, I mean, where I think now people think of her as, which is how she thought of herself, as a major writer, period. She was a feminist, a later feminist, but she was not, she didn't want to be a woman writer or a science fiction writer or a fantasy writer. She was a writer. When did you first encounter her, Jerry, as a, as a reader and as a critic? I guess The Left Hand of Darkness. Mm-hmm. And when was that published? 1969, so it was very much a 60s book, I think, that it, uh, both influenced by the 60s, and then she, that book influenced a lot of people's thinking about gender. You know, she thought of her work, one of the ways she thought of it as was thought experiments, you know, the phrase from Einstein where you change something, you think about something, and then you 
figure out uh, what a world might look like if that were true. And she said about left-handed darkness, I eliminated gender to find out what was left. And that's what the book is about. It's a world without gender. People are neutral until they go into heat, essentially, and then they become either male or female. And it was a mind-blowing concept at the time. That phrase about later she became able to write as a mature woman. I do actually feel that even in her early work, um, I would even I would call it feminist, even if she herself did not consciously think of it as feminist, even if she didn't consciously think of it as political. I think that her voice, her politics, her humanity and the way she saw the world Mm -hmm. was coming through always. I know a lot of people feel that the later Earthsea book, Tahanu, that she wrote was more explicitly, consciously feminist than the earlier books. And I I can see why people feel that way. But to me, the earlier ones, it was still there. You said that she was political, too. What were her politics? She, I guess, was never overtly partisan, I'm not aware of. Not partisan. No, no, never. She said she was a, a, a... when, when asked what, what her view of life was, it was Taoist, and, and that sometimes gets explicitly into some of her books. And there's a sense of balance and not going too much to any one side. But there's no question her politics were progressive and certainly uh, uh, anti-war. She wrote several different books, I think, in which, you know, she had interesting kinds of utopias Mm -hmm. that were clearly influenced by anarchist philosophy. But, you know, the thing is, she was always, I think, more focused on telling the truth of people and in wanting you to believe in the truth of the characters in the world. And so her utopias are not utopian. I think, what's the phrase, the ambiguously good utopia, where it's not actually about telling you this is a perfect society and this is what a perfect society would look like. I think that she would not believe that you could describe a perfect society, but that it was more about saying this fixes a problem in our world, in our society, in a sense, or at least imagines, does one of those thought experiments. The other book that is usually listed, I guess it's taught in college, is called The Dispossessed, which I think that's what you were referring mm-hmm. to. I think it, the subtitle is An Ambiguous Utopia. She has two worlds, a planet and a moon, an inhabited moon, and they're each very different kinds of worlds. They both kind of work, mm-hmm. and they're opposed to each other in many ways. And uh, they're both utopian in a sense. And some people read it and say, oh, well, that one is really nasty and the other one's good. And it's exactly what she wanted because she's been quoted as saying neither one is is the answer. Isn't that what you're saying? They're, there's something in a way wrong with both of them. And yet it's sort of maybe her Taoist idea that uh, some kind of balance and you have to do it yourself. I mean, she seemed very intent on avoiding, you know, being sort of narrow casted, being defined and worked across many genres. I'm curious, though, if there is across all that, that that range of work, a kind of discernible Le Guin style. Like, do you read her and say, like, I hear her voice here. It's recognizable. Absolutely. Very strongly. And in fact, I think that one of the one of the characteristic traits of her writing is that she was not afraid to let you hear her voice. Mm-hmm. She would often break the fourth wall in a way. She would talk to you. She would just tell you things about the society. You know, one of the things 
that newer writers are often told is to avoid the quote-unquote info dump, to avoid doing a lot of exposition. She would do heaps of exposition. Mm -hmm. She would, you know, just front load you with everything about the society that she wanted you to know. But her own voice was telling it to you and often in a pleasurable, in, in such a pleasurable way that you were interested. Absolutely. And the other thing about her is that, which I think is true of her fantasy and science fiction, but certainly in her case, there's not that much difference between them. There really isn't. One of the things she does is what's called, at least in the genre, world building, because obviously these are not set around the corner in New York or California or Bangladesh or whatever. They're set on worlds she makes, cultures and societies, and it's the anthropological basis and they're so – it's hard to say how she does it because it's – even with the info dumps, it's not that full of information like that. But you feel like you're in this world and it's a real world. And if you stepped out of the door and left the characters in that room, they'd be in the, the world would be out there, which is what you feel in, in good fiction in general. And she was really one of the masters of that, no question about it. Did you interview her? I never had the pleasure, no. Never met her. I, I did didn't. you ever meet her, Naomi? I did not meet her in person. We actually corresponded over my last book, Uprooted. It was sent to her for a blurb, mm -hmm. and she actually wrote back very positively. And so she gave you a blurb? Yeah. She blurbed Uprooted. And more than that, she gave me some private feedback on it that influenced Spinning Silver, which is the book that I, I just finished, which is sort of the next one on. All right. I'm not going to ask you to narrow this down to one book and, and suggest a, uh, just a favorite, but let me ask this in a two-part way. What book would you recommend to listeners who have never read Ursula K. Le Guin as kind of the ideal introduction to Le Guin? And then also, what is your personal favorite? Jerry, let's start with you. Can I do two? Yes, uh, okay. yes. Every, you, you can All always right. cheat with these answers. No one, one ever answers the, it with uh, one. One is the left hand of darkness, which I think everyone should read. And Why? Still, because it's for one thing, it speaks about today in a way that it's it's stunningly appropriate. But the other is that it's just an awfully good book in which it has a lot of her. It's her anthropology. It's her thought experiments, and it's her world building. And uh, it's just, it's it's a good book. Mm -hmm. And the other would be the Earthsea series, which, uh, you know, start with the first. They, the first three were written at, uh, for children, for young people. And then she went on to develop it for adults. But frankly, I mean, it's all, it's all the same to me. And uh, it has the world building and the anthropology in there, but also characters that are m memorable and incidents that are memorable. All right, Naomi, the, the starter book and your favorite book. So I, it's so hard because, you know, for me, it's all about which book meets you where you are. I would sort of say if you're just coming to it cold, read A Wizard of Earthsea. It's very short and it's beautiful and it, it's just a pleasure. It's just sort of a sensual pleasure. It's a reading pleasure. It's a literary pleasure. It's a, Those are characters that that come alive. So I would say A Wizard of Earthsea is a great place to start. A short story, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas. And I've been sitting with that story myself very recently. In fact, I'd been sort of writing things influenced by it at the moment when she passed away. And that influenced the poem that I wrote about her. And Omelas is another one of these ambiguous, far more explicitly ambiguous utopias, where again, she doesn't take the easy way out and doesn't give you an answer, but it kind of 
captures a bit of her thought and I feel like captures some of her her struggling to sort of tell you something and communicate something that you know she often liked to say the artist deals with what cannot be said in words and a novelist is an artist who works with words so a novelist says in words what cannot be said in words Naomi, when we approached you to write an appreciation of Ursula K. Le Guin for the book review, you came back to us instead with a poem. Would you read a few lines from that? Absolutely. For Ursula, I want to tell you something true, because that's what she did. I want to take you down a road she built, only I don't want to follow it to the end. I want to step off the edge and go into the underbrush, clearing another way, because that's also what she taught. Not how to repave her road, but how to lay another, even if it meant the grass came through the cracks of the pavement and the thicket ate it up. I want to show you something that I dug up out of the earth inside, because she spent her life picking away at the tunnel veins, and in the next one over, through the walls I heard her working, the rhythmic steady tick-tick-tick of her knocking at the stone, a music of the sharp end of a pen digging into paper and try to learn a rhythm of my own, how to get the weight swinging. Naomi, thank you. Jerry, I think also that the obituary is as much an art form as a kind of, a kind of writing as a poem. And I'm curious, for you, in writing her obituary, what was the most important thing you wanted to convey about her life and her legacy? I guess that she was not to be limited to the genre that gave birth to her career, that she was a writer and uh, she was acknowledged at that toward the end, but there were many people, I think, who had heard of her and would still say, oh, a science fiction writer, a fantasy writer. And she was the first person to say that there was nothing wrong with genre. She, she did enjoy it, but she was not to be limited to that. And uh, people can come at her from a lot of different ways and enjoy her. And I just want to second what Naomi said, pleasurable. I mean, her writing is, is pleasurable, and that's the first reason you read it. All right. Thank you both so much. Naomi Novik, author of Uprooted and Spinning Silver, and Jerry Jonas, former longtime reviewer for The New York Times and the writer of our obituary for Ursula K. Le Guin. Thank you both. Thank you. Thanks. Alexander Alter joins us now with news from the publishing world. Alexander, hi. Hi, Pamela. So news in children's books this yes, week. Yes, we have good news and bad news. What do you want to start with this um, week? <laughs> let's start with the bad news and we'll move up from there. Yes, that's, that is that is always a good way to go. So, you know, this week was a big week in children's publishing. And the good news is that the American Library Association announced its winners for some of the most prestigious awards in children's publishing, the Newberries, the Caldecotts, and those all came out. So everyone was celebrating some of the top authors in the industry. But at the same time, this discussion broke out online about harassment in the children's book industry which has been going on as it has in all industries, but it's really come to the surface now, you know, in the months after the whole Weinstein scandal. And it's interesting to see this discussion unfolding online because the children's book industry is very much dominated often by by women, and it's a very collegial and warm and friendly community. At the same time, it seems that because 
a lot of authors break in through these conferences, there is kind of a recipe for harassment to take place where you have some very successful male authors who are proposing that they might be mentors to people trying to break in. And so some of these allegations came to the surface this week, and a lot of it has been reported in the press, but some of the allegations are still unsubstantiated, I should say. But there has been professional fallout for some major authors. So what happened recently was there was an article on Medium about sexual harassment in the children's book industry by the children's book author Anne Urso. She had done this fairly substantial survey of women who work in the industry. And she didn't name any names, but it was kind of clear who some of the identities of, of some of the male authors were. And that led a lot of people to comment on another article from School Library Journal. And in those comments, people were actually making accusations and using people's names. And as a result, a major children's book conference, the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators, which is one of the, the biggest industry organizations, and they have conferences where people, you know, mingle and, and break into the industry and make connections. They removed one of their board members, illustrator David Diaz, and another big author, Jay Asher, who is the author of 13 Reasons Why, a, a major best-selling young adult novel that was adapted into a Netflix series. He has actually been suspended from the conference as well. Jay Asher has responded through various media outlets, and he claims that he left the organization on his own and that he was the one who has been harassed by these women who are teaming up on him and coming forward. You know, he disputes the idea that he was banned. Jay Asher was also let go by his literary agency, as was another major children's book author, James Dashner, who is the author of the best-selling series The Maze Runner. So it'll be very interesting to watch how this plays out and, you know, if there's further professional repercussions for people. And children's so, books is like such a, a touchy area for this kind of thing because people, parents, teachers, kids exactly. idolize these authors. They do. They do. And it is sort of a touchy thing to see this play out publicly as well. And there could be repercussions with readers and with booksellers and with librarians and teachers, as you say, because it's a very close-knit community. And those recommendations can ricochet around and really make an author's career. So I'll, we'll be following that here, of course. And now shall we move to the good news? Let's, let's please do that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So the great news was that there were some wonderful children's book authors who were honored this week by the American Library Association. The Newberries and the Caldecotts and all those prizes went out. So the Newberry Award this year went to Hello Universe, which is a novel by Aaron and Trotta Kelly. It was a kind of a surprising choice. You know, this was a year... And in the last couple of years, actually, you've seen the children's book industry really embracing and and celebrating books that take on big issues like race and gender and politics and immigration and the refugee crisis. And a lot of you know teachers and librarians are promoting those books. But this was a this was a quieter book, although you know it does deal with bullying and the protagonist is a Filipino American boy who is bullied. So it's not apolitical, but it's a little bit of a of a quieter take on that. Similarly, the Caldecott Medal, which goes to the most distinguished American picture book, went to Wolf in the Snow, which is illustrated and written by Matthew Cordell. And it's a wordless picture book. So again, it's sort of a quieter book. And really, they're celebrating his artistry and the power of the images to tell the story. The I Caldecott love those. judges love wordless they books. Do. They do. I love them myself, them. too. Yeah. Particularly when you have, you know, a young a young kid who has a 
vivid imagination, but they're not quite there yet with reading. It's fun to hand them a book like this and let them tell the story. Matthew Cordell is so talented. Too. Yes. Look up all of his books. And the other big awards, there is the Coretta Scott King Book Awards, and that went to Piecing Me Together by Renee Watson. Mm -hmm. She won the King Author Book Award. And the Michael Prince Award went to We Are Okay by Nina LaCour, which is a young adult novel. It features a college student who has this tragic family history, and she's alone on campus during a break in a snowstorm. And it's, again, a sort of a quieter, unexpected book to win, but one that critics absolutely loved. The Prince is basically the Newberry for YA. That's right, but yes. But people, I think, were surprised that Angie Thomas didn't win, right? They were, yeah. The Prince celebrates young adult literature, and Angie Thomas was named as a Prince Honor book, as was Jason Reynolds. But yeah, I think a lot of people were expecting her to win. She did take home a number of awards and honors this year, so she definitely was recognized. But I did think also that people were expecting she would win. That book got so much deserved attention and love this year. Well, you know what? It's good news to bring new attention to those books that may have not gotten it. That's so true. Let's think about it all in a positive light. Alexander, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Joining us now are our trusty book critics, Dwight Garner, Paul Sagal, and Jen Salai. Hi, guys. Hey, Pamela. Hey, Hi, Pamela. Pamela. All right, let's talk a little bit about what you all did this week. Let's just start off with the book. So going around, let's start with you, Pearl. I reviewed two books on how marriage is changing. The Heart is a Shifting Sea by Elizabeth Flock, a book about Bombay or Mumbai, um, following a bunch of different couples over the period of 10 years. And then I also reviewed... Leftover in China by a journalist named Roseanne Lake, which looked at why Chinese women are not getting married. Dwight, what about you? Yeah, I, I reviewed uh, Robert Coover's book of stories. It's a, a sort of greatest hits collection called Going for a Beer. And, you know, Coover's one of the last men standing, one of, one of the great sort of postmodern writers in, in, the, in a group that included sort of um, people like John Barth and Donald Barthelmey and John Hawkes and some other writers who really um, were serious tinkers and experimentalists. And... Um, it was interesting to find out if his stories held up, and I think a bunch of them really do. All right. We'll go back to that, Jen. And I reviewed a book called Scarlet A, The Ethics, Law, and Politics of Ordinary Abortion by Katie Watson, who's a bioethicist at Northwestern. All right. Let's start with Coover, because when you say, like, he's one of the great postmodernist writers and experimental, I think people who have not read him, some people might be intrigued and others might be like, I will never, ever read that. <laughs> what are his stories like? What are his subjects? What's you know, his style like? You don't come to Robert Coover to find really epiphanies, characters, drama. There's none of the standard stuff of fiction in them. He kind of turns fiction inside out. What he does is he he takes things like fairy tales and biblical stories. For example, one story is about Noah's brother, and he's sort of helping Noah build the ark, and but he kind of gives up. This is boring, and then it starts to rain, and he gets wet and angry, and thinks to himself, like, how did he know, you know? And uh, other stories are really actually filthy fairy tales. He likes to reimagine things like, you know, the Snow White story or Goldilocks and often in really disturbing ways. And he has a famous story called The Babysitter from 1969, which is just an extraordinary piece of writing about this young girl home with two kids. And you see this story from all sorts of perspectives. And there's no, you don't, you don't know, dream does not separate from reality and her boyfriend may or not may or may not be coming to rape her. The father of the kids may be coming home to do the same thing to her. You see what she's doing. You see what they're thinking. And none of it is quite real, and yet it's all hyper-real. And it ends with you not really knowing if any of this stuff actually happened. But they are not the kind of thing 
that I tend to like as a reader. I tend to like close observation about the world and just sort of micro felicities of prose. He doesn't write that way. Instead, he ladles on the sex and the gore and the madness and the surrealism. And I loved a lot of these, though. I, I became a fan. And I didn't With the reading this of book this up. book, you became a fan. I became a fan. Yeah. There are four or five stories that I'll just never forget from this collection. And one or two I'd read before, but the rest I hadn't. And I wish at some point I would love a, an editor to come and select just the best eight Coover stories, put them in a little book, and it would be an American classic. Because this was not a little book. No, too many stories. And too many of them didn't work, even though it's the greatest hits collection. So I have a question for you. So again, you, you come to the project and you're like, I'm not a huge Coover fan. Why did you pick up the book? Why did you review it? One of the great things about being a book critic for the New York Times is that you get your education in public. And I just didn't know enough about Coover, and he's clearly a major figure on the landscape. And I wanted to know. And the first three or four stories did nothing for me. And I, I kind of was just like, oh, what, I'm in for a long week now. And then they got better and kept getting better. This is actually a question I'd like to throw out to all of you because let's be honest, it is February. It is not September or October. It's not even May. This is a little bit of a sleepy period in the publishing world in general. And I think in particular right now, there's a lot of uncertainty, you know, among publishers of like, well, what, what do people want to read right now as a consequence there aren't a lot of big, obvious books of, like, this the New York Times needs to weigh in on. So, Jen, how did you decide to review okay. what you did this week? Okay. So I have to admit that with this book, when I initially saw it, I sort of put it aside, and I didn't really necessarily think that this was something I had to review. But when I actually started reading it, I was impressed by the tone mainly because there's been so much that's been written on the subject of abortion and I mean, if anything, this is part of what the author Katie Watson gets at, which is that the conversation just seems so loud, so unforgiving. Everybody sort of assumes bad faith on both sides. And what she really wanted to do with this book, which is also a very short book, I think it's only about maybe 250 pages or so, is really sort of break down the underlying questions that people often have about abortion from an ethical perspective, which I think is really hard to do, especially when the conversation about ethics and morality, as she also points out, is something that really the anti-abortion side has taken it upon themselves to really, that, that that's the domain that they're talking about and that people who are in favor of abortion rights often feel hesitant to weigh into that territory, wade into that territory because it feels so dangerous. There was a line in your review that I loved that, as you said, she just wants to get Americans to simply talk up to one another. And you described this current moment as this distrustful day and age, which mm. for some reason this week especially oh, felt yeah. especially apt, although I guess next week it'll probably also feel equally. Oh. Yeah, I, f I think that that sort of feeling that it's just hard to talk to anyone Outside of your <laughs> about anything, especially outside of your own sort of safe circle of okay, I know what everybody thinks about this particular situation. I, I I don't think that that feeling is going away. I think that her book is an attempt to invite people to think about it differently. Whether or not she'll actually succeed, I think it remains to be seen because I do think it'll be interesting to see people who feel very differently about the subject, how they would respond to a book like this. Because it should also be said that she herself, in terms of the legality issue, is very much adamant that it's a constitutional right. It needs to remain legal. That is not negotiable for her. 
How do you pick out a book to review when there aren't, you know, when there isn't like a big obvious book that, you know, needs to be weighed in on, you know, right now? I mean, how do you go about that process, Carl? (laughs) (laughs) Since you asked everyone else (laughs) how they Tables have turned. I mean, (laughs) how do I pick? I mean, like, you know what, what happens to me, and I think this is what happens to a lot of people, whether you're reviewing a book or you're in a bookstore, is that, you know, you flip through a lot of these books. And you're trying to make a decision. And just as someone who habitually trusts her intuition in all of these things, in all ways, something will stick with me, like a sentence or an argument, or I'll suddenly realize, okay, I mean, for example, like this week, I reviewed two books about marriage. And I was looking at both of them, and they were both interesting. But then after a while, I, I just was like, oh, but they're two, I wonder, what do they do? Can I put, what would they say to each other? You know, and these things happen you know, like as you're wandering around in the course of a day, you know, you're walking the dog, you're living your life. And you suddenly say, like, this is something that I can open up a little bit and wrestle with. I think one of the interesting things to me as a reader of your review of those two books is that both of the authors were coming to this as an outsiders to these cultures. Right. I mean, and that's something that I didn't want to harp on too much. I feel like so many times these reviews can go into that very predictable vein of who has a right to tell these stories. Yes. And so I'm starting from the standpoint of these are two terrific journalists who have put in time, who've done the research and are coming to these countries and these situations in a spirit of good faith and honest inquiry and actually, you know, having their own premises checked by what they're finding. And yeah, I mean, I think more broadly, you know, as the kid of refugees, I'm always really, really interested in books that juxtapose big historical changes in your personal life. Mm-hmm. And both these books do that, you know, for India and for China. But then you can also see in the course of writing how they're also starting to think about well, what brings me to these places? What does this mean about my own, you know, setup? Not, I mean, they don't spend much time there, but it's enough that you feel like this isn't, you know, somebody going there to make some sort of cheap argument. Or, um, But yeah, it was good fun. You know, as book critics, we have better eyes for the heroes of the past than the heroes of the future. And so we tend to see these major landmarks coming towards us. You know, oh, here's a new book by Marilyn Robinson. Here's a Martin Amis. Here's a whomever. And in in the times of the publishing year, when there aren't as many obvious big names, it's 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 interesting to go scratch around. And, and that's when you do some of your best work of the year in terms of finding newer writers. And some of those writers are, are published at this time of year for yep. that reason, yep. you know, because the, the, they leave all the heavyweights for the summer reading and for the fall. And it's the exciting thing, too. You can make a case for someone, you know, and you can make a case for something new. And I think that when the book is really great and you feel like you've really unearthed something, you make a case for yourself about how you're reading and what you value. And that can change and that can feel super, you know, exciting. Jen, I have a question. When, you, when sure. you're reviewing a book like Scarlet yeah. A about the politics of abortion, how much does the prose matter to you? In, uh, yeah, in terms of, that's a of good question. in comparison to how much the argument matters, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I didn't. I, in terms of the the review, I don't think I commented explicitly on her prose, but you know, her she's trained as a lawyer, so it's very, very lucid. I did mention, I think, at some point that it's pretty conversational in tone, which is sort of part of her overall project. I think in a book like this, where you know what she really wants to do is sort of help people understand their own thinking and other people's thinking. Prose is incredibly important in the sense that it's part of the way that at least I think she hopes to get people into the conversation, to draw people in, to draw people into her book, which is one of the reasons that I ended up reviewing it. I think, you know, there was something about, it's it's not, there's nothing lyrical about it, but it is just very sort of 
clear, open, open-minded. And I it's think an interesting it's really topic for me. Uh, oh no, just think like in a book about tone. That's great. Yeah, <laughs> you know? exactly. I mean, I think some she attention has, must be. I given. think she's very. I mean, if anything, yeah. and you do sort of see at the end. I couldn't get into this. You know, she gets very, very personal in the end. To the point where right at the very end, she's, you know, she's sort of acknowledging for the fact that some people might see her own experience in this particular light. Other people might see it in another particular light. It's it's maybe almost a little too self-conscious, but I think she realizes she kind of has to be on mm-hmm, this topic mm-hmm. if she's really sort of advising people to open up and be aware. And I've sometimes found myself reviewing books of history or biographies and commenting um, – at length on a writer's style. And, and um, I sometimes wonder if I'm not overdoing it. I, mean, I can't help it because I read for style. You know, I have my politics, but politics aren't really what drives me. What drives me are, are great sentences and mm-hmm. tone and writing. And I find myself criticizing these writers who are maybe writing a history of, of mine, mine work in America. And a friend said to me, Dwight, you know, these guys aren't aware they're supposed to have a style. You know, they're, 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 they're historians. And I sometimes wonder if I've gone too far. How do you feel about criticizing uh, a writer's prose in a, polem- in a, in a book like this one? In this instance, if I were to be more explicit about her style, I would have said, you know, this is this is pretty good. I mean, all things considered, especially that she's navigating a subject that's so difficult and fraught, you know, there's a way in which she could have really tried to obfuscate things, I think, with prose, and she really doesn't. But, yeah, I do think that it's an interesting question for nonfiction because, you know, in terms of nonfiction, especially this sort of maybe not this particular book, but, you know, other books of what you were mentioning, like big sort of history, like just trying to sort of communicate a lot of information. All of these things sort of come down, I think, to a reader's experience. And I think if it's something that I find myself engaging with on various registers, whether it partly has to do with the prose, partly has to do with the content, you know, that's something that I I really want to take into account. But it is probably the case that Somebody's tackling a hugely difficult subject, and the prose is fine, but it's not it's not necessarily singing. I won't focus too much on that, but um, I think it really depends on the critic. It I does, mean, but it feels like no style is a kind of style too. Oh, sure. you know, and yeah. like these books may seem like they have no style. They may be this like Orwellian clarity, but they they have yeah. conventions, you know, and they have a point of view, and they have a way that they're marshalling and telling us, giving us information in the story that feels to me you know, like a style worth talking about, yes. you know. Well, is that no style style, like when they want, they don't want people focusing on the style because they want people focusing yeah, on Yeah, I mean, the, but it's also like like talking about like the book that you reviewed, Jen, like she's a lawyer, so she knows how to, her sentences have been honed and oh, yes. shaped, you know, and she's yeah. presenting information in a very probably rhythmic way, yeah. you know. I mean, she wouldn't call it rhythmic, but yeah, she, you know, explosive. it is... Yeah, yes. it is measured and it is meant to do a particular kind of thing, you know. Yeah. My sister's a lawyer and she doesn't speak like a human being. Like she's extremely <laughs> <laughs> deliberate. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, and wins every argument yeah. and I'm law- but <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean like it's like the same thing where people say, you know, like not having, you know, there's no there's no such thing as a a political writer, you know. Right. It's like it's there, it's in the sentence, yeah. it's somewhere. I remember the controversy when the New Yorker assigned for review Daniel Goldhagen's book about the Holocaust. Oh, what was yes. the title of that book? <laughs> Hitler's Willing Executioners? Execu- willing Executioners. And they gave the book to Clive James for review. And, and I, I adore Clive wow. James, but he's essentially a literary critic. And they gave this major work of history. That's a very history. unusual That's and, and, and it was controversial only because Clive wrote this charming review, but it was almost too charming. He was just so busy being Clive James and showing off and being that he kind of 
didn't engage with the argument in the book. And it, my worst moments as a critic, I feel like I'm doing that because, you know, there are subjects you write about as a critic you don't know a lot about. And that's my big fear, which is why, you know, I, I tend to be careful with books. Yeah. And reviewing this subjects is a safe and... space. We can all talk to one another, <laughs> Dwight. <laughs> all right. Carl, Dwight, Jen, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Bella. Thank, Thank you. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Inside the New York Times Book Review is produced by Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media. Thanks for listening. For the New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul. Thank you.